0: Welcome to the X-Cures podcast, Target Cancer, How the Health Tech Revolution is Helping Cancer Patients. Uh, My name is Mika Newton. I'm the CEO of X-Cures, and I'm joined today by Dr. Kim uh, from UCLA. So maybe just to get started, Dr. Kim, why don't we just do some uh, basic introductions? Maybe you could tell me a little bit about uh, you and your practice and your training, um, uh, and we can just go from there.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, Thanks for having me. And uh, my uh, background is essentially that I am a neurosurgeon at UCLA. My primary focus is in brain tumors and skull-based tumors. Uh, I trained there for medical school and residency and did a fellowship there in stereotactic and functional neurosurgery um, with a focus on uh, radiosurgeries and minimally invasive ways to treat brain tumors. I um, have been there on faculty for, this is my sixth year now, and my passion and primary clinical interest is treating metastatic brain tumors. Um, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Well,
0: thank you for coming on. Um, so uh, I'm the CEO of x We've been around as a business for about three years now, helping advanced cancer patients. One of the things that I really wanted to talk to you today about is really the way that technology is affecting patient care and the patient experience um, overall. And when I think about technology, I think about it. You know, in a few different ways, I think about novel therapeutics, you know, new drugs and new types of um, therapeutic option come through things like uh, novel vaccines and these type of things. I think particularly in brain cancer, we've seen a fair part of that. I think about novel diagnostics, you know, also coming through to like, how do we detect things? What's going on with genomics, proteomics, different types of data? Um, How do we gather that? And when is it appropriate and useful to use it? And then I think about information and coordination right? Which is like, we make all this data and we have all these new tools, but somebody's got to figure out how to put it, put it all together. Um, And so I was just wondering from your perspective now, like what are kind of the big or exciting things that are going on in the field, kind of in those three areas, like therapeutically, diagnostically, and then also from this kind of care coordination uh, perspective?
1: Yeah, that's a really big, heavy question to start with. Um, I, I think what you said is exactly right. Um, we are in a, day of information and technology where we're creating more data than ever was before, you know, in existence um, in the history of man and so it's hard to kind of sift through what is actually valuable and what's rubbish out there. I mean, you can have a million cat videos uh, versus um, you know, the, the Mozart type um, constructions in our time and I think the same is the, for medicine as well. Um just the past few years, we're seeing more and more that um, trying to find what's valuable information and even getting people to believe what's valuable information is becoming harder and harder with all the noise. Um, so from kind of a, a large, like, um, high-level view, what's exciting to me is that, you know, there is all this innovation, particularly in the realm of brain cancer. Um, when we talk about Uh, diagnostics, for example, um, being in the field of metastatic brain tumors, I think that we're doing more and more with investigating the individual cancer cells and being able to tell more through kind of non-invasive ways. So things that excite me currently is that with brain metastases, for example, there are tiny degrees or tiny fragments of DNA that are shed by brain tumors into the cerebral spinal fluid. And so getting diagnostic information through the CSF, the cerebral spinal fluid, through what we call liquid biopsies and Mm -hmm. analyzing the DNA, we can not only tell what the cancers of origin are, but we can also see how the disease is progressing, whether or not there are mutations. A lot of this is experimental and research-based right now, but I think in the future, this will be uh, a very important way that we follow our cancer patients. Um, We are looking at, the immune environment on a cellular level by taking the the DNA and RNA from single um, cancer cells and single lymphocytes that invade these cancer cells and by looking at the composition of these cells, say exactly what's happening on on a cellular level, which is incredible. Um, So those are some of the things in the way of uh, diagnostics that I'm really excited about in my field in particular. As far as therapeutics, much similar to that, um, I think that there's a lot of technology that's coming out uh, that is very exciting in the realm of um, brain tumor treatments. Um, one that's really taken off recently is laser ablation, mm. and I think that uh, this is something that you know people joked about, you know, using lasers to treat tumors. But um, I think that it's really come a long way in the last five years. We can insert laser fibers. Um, to down to a millimeter accuracy within the brain. And using real-time MR thermography, see how much tissue we are destroying with the laser fiber while the patient is in the MR suite. Um, and the reason why this is important, especially in brain metastases, is that when patients fail standard of care, such as radiation or surgery plus radiation, there's not a lot of options. You can go back in and try to scoop out more tumor or radiation toxicity but often these diseases come back. But laser ablation has been very, very successful at treating these in a minimally invasive manner and allowing patients with brain metastases to really get on with their life. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also another treatment that I'm very excited about is immunotherapy. Um, Immunotherapy traditionally was not really given to patients with brain metastases, or actually I should say that clinical trials involving immunotherapy, brain metastases patients were excluded because of their uh, typically poor prognosis. But we're seeing more and more that, you know, we can really utilize immunotherapy to treat patients with brain tumors. And this is something that we're really pushing for at UCLA, our um, my institution, as well as across the country. So I think those were... To the, the highlights nice. to i'm
0: about. fascinated by the the laser ablation um so I've, of course i i've heard about regular surgery you're a brain surgeon right which is an amazing thing uh, in and of itself so are are these um basically they're i think of fibers like uh, light uh, fibers like or like i would think of for any sort of the cable and you're actually able to deliver the laser radiation unless the energy from the laser through the but you can actually control exactly where it is. So it's like custom sculpting of the surgery. Is that done with robotics, or is that done with...?
1: Great questions. Um, So, you know, for the audience, actually, I I think that we can take a step back. and Mm -hmm. Radiation energy, it kills tumors. Laser energy, it's uh, thermal energy, also kills tumors. The difference is that uh, radiation is non-invasive, and it comes from beams that are intersecting almost like um, lights on a stage and the intersection point is where the most energy is given. Mm-hmm. But the damage, as you know, is the DNA. So it's not an instant kill. it's It slowly kills the tumor. And because of that, you can't really retreat um, often because it would cause inflammation and brain tissue inflammation, which can be more harmful than the tumor itself. Laser ablation, it doesn't use ionizing radiation, but instead Mm -hmm. uses thermal energy, so you can treat multiple, multiple times. The fiber itself is actually just a firm um, fiber. It's about two or three millimeters thick. Okay. And at the end of it is the the laser probe. And using that, yes, you get a kind of a a grape-shaped or round spherical ablation um, that is just heat energy. And by looking at the pattern in which water molecules move in the MRI, you can have a representation of how much you're actually destroying. So. Sounds very
0: like a very fine-grained approach.
1: It is of, a very very fine fine-grained approach. yeah.
0: And w- when was this type of technology? Like when did it start coming to market? And yeah, and so used?
1: the technologies have been around probably about ten years, but it's really been kind of taking off in the last five six years, I would say. Um, we did our first laser ablation case when I was in residency at UCLA, um, so that was maybe. Seven, eight years ago when we did our first one, and it's just really taken off since then. Okay.
0: So, um, fascinating. Actually, I I think I'd heard it mentioned, but I've never actually spoken to someone who does that or gets through it. So, um, you know, thinking about brain cancer, one of the issues in brain cancer that I've talked to quite a number of people who are looking at developing drugs for, for brain cancer um, across it has always been the issue of the blood brain barrier, right? And actually getting something across the blood brain barrier. Um, and so a lot of people have felt that part of the reason why there have been so few options in brain cancer treatment is just I mean, we've never really solved these problems of actually figuring out how to get the drugs where they need to go and, and how to do that. Is, is that changing? Is the way that drugs are delivered or are we getting better medicines out in the marketplace? Is that really moving uh, or changing?
1: That's a great question. I, I think that, and it's an unfortunate um, kind of byproduct of industry and innovation that the more people there are that have the disease, the the more incentive there is, right? Mm -hmm. So brain metastases patients and brain tumor patients, such as the primary ones like glioma, glioblastoma, not a whole lot, or it kind of pales in comparison to the general cancer population. But we're seeing more and more um, patients survive longer with brain metastases. So I think there's more innovation there. The blood-brain barrier, um, it is an issue. And I think that a lot of Research has gone into making molecules smaller and smaller so it can penetrate the blood-brain barrier. And we're seeing a lot of these um, different novel targeted therapies that are be- being engineered in such a way that they can actually get there. Um, and so the, like instead of the first-generation targeted therapies, the third-generation ones seem to get there better um, because they are being manipulated in such a way that they can get there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the immunotherapy is actually exciting because a lot of the the priming of the immune cells actually happens outside the brain. And then the, the inflammatory cells, the immune cells, then can pass into the brain just by virtue of being small enough to pass mm-hmm. the blood-brain barrier. And then it's just a matter of affecting the immune environment within the brain itself. And that's where the novel drugs and therapies are um, really uh, being developed to, to change that as well. So we've been
0: uh, this discussion right from the get-go. We focus kind of on the new things.
1: I think, also thinking
0: about it, so, as a patient comes in right, newly diagnosed and they're coming in, they're hearing about all this technology, and people here first of all, uh, we see this all the time, patients see have cancer, that's a very difficult thing to have, and then brain cancer, I think everyone has this, and rightfully so this, oh my goodness, this is a really difficult diagnosis to have. Can you talk a little bit um, for our audience about the different staging of brain cancer and kind of what are the things that to look out for um, and like what how do people find out they have brain cancer and like what does that generally look like?
1: Yeah, uh, great question. So I like to think of um, brain cancer as kind of two different major um, groups. There's the, the metastatic disease that we talked about and that's what brain cancer is from another part of the body. So metastasizing from a lung cancer or, or breast cancer, for example. And those cancer- cancers are just by virtue of metastasizing from the primary organ, a stage four, just by definition. So any brain metastasis patient is stage four to me. As far as primary brain tumors like gliomas, glioblastomas are the more common ones that we hear about. Um, there are four grades of tumors. And so those are kind of the, the aggressiveness of the tumor cells themselves. And uh, grade one is typically reserved for pediatric patients. It's more of the a younger population, although adults can have them as well. And then grades two, three, and four are kind of along the same spectrum of glioma, two being kind of a lower grade, not quite benign, we would say, but um, with surgery, you can actually cure them by taking it all out. Mm-hmm. Grade three and four, surgery is not curative because there are always going to be tiny little cancer cells throughout the brain that you don't see on the MRI. That is why Glioma patients, glioblastoma patients have such high rates of recurrence um, despite our best efforts in surgery and chemo and radiation. So those are the, typically the more malignant um, grades of tumors.
0: So just um, before the new technology, what is the standard of care? You talked about surgery and radi- radiation. Is there a, a big difference in the standard of care depending on what type of, of brain cancer you have? Are they fairly consistent approaches? You know, what what would a patient expect? Uh, Be an initial recommendation, and then when do you say
1: that that's not a standard care is
0: inappropriate? Like
1: how are those decisions? um, Yeah, so I'll I'll start with primary brain tumors. I think that you know grades one and two, um, if you can remove everything, oftentimes um, people might advocate for observation rather than doing any postoperative chemo or radiation because we know surgically it can be curative. Grade three and four, um, it's surgery if it's safe. Um, followed by chemo and radiation. Oftentimes, it's what we call the STOOP protocol. Um, so five, week, five and a half weeks of radiation. Timozolamide is typically the, the, the drug of choice, sometimes with specific mutations and um, a certain type of brain tumor. You can try different <clears throat> chemotherapies, such as PCV, um, because of uh, that seems to respond, or those patients seem to respond better with a certain mutation. So I would say that that typically is the the standard of care as far as primary brain tumors go with the first diagnosis. One and two, surgery, if you can get it all. Um, If there's anything left over, potentially chemo and radiation. Threes and four, surgery, if it's safe, followed by chemo and radiation. Now with metastatic brain tumors, I I think that it's an evolving field. Um, There's a lot of data out there to suggest that if you have large symptomatic brain metastasis, removing it safely um, can get patients back on their feet, get them healthy enough to undergo radiation, etc., um, as well as their systemic therapy. Now with brain metastasis patients, the number of brain metastases is actually very important okay. because if you have more than 10 or 15 brain metastases, typically the recommendation is for whole brain radiation. Um, but that is radiating the whole brain. It is pretty good at controlling the, the cancer cells, but you're also targeting um, critical memory structures. So a lot of studies show that you can have decline in cognitive ability and language, um, verbal memory, um, four to six months after the radiation. And so it's, it's one of those things that if you have fewer than 10 metastases or 15 metastases, uh, we really try to do focused radiation. It's called stereotactic radiosurgery. And this is kind of uh, my personal crusade, um, and uh, something that I see out in the community is that it's a little bit more challenging to treat more than five individual brain metastases with radiation. Um, Community technologies, maybe even some other institutions, they would have to bring the patient back on multiple days to treat more than three metastases. We're fortunate enough at UCLA to have a treating platform and a machine that allows us to treat 15, 20 small brain metastases simultaneously within 40 to 50 minutes on a single session, which you know even three, four years ago wasn't really possible. Um, so we're able to preserve that kind of neurocognitive ability in these patients by pushing the envelope on how many small brain metastases we treat. Um, so that that is something that I think that our listeners and patients should be aware of that if they're offered whole brain radiation, they should get a second opinion at a larger mm-hmm. institution, see if, you know, radio surgery is an option.
0: Very interesting. So as patients get this information, so a, a diagnosis of any sort of brain cancer, whether it's primary or metastatic, it's a very serious diagnosis. Um, and I think one of the things that patients wonder is what's really out there, what's available. And um, you and I were chatting a little bit before, the show here about kind of trying to separate what's real from what's not real. Um, so uh, we always kind of tongue-in-cheek, we call them Dr. Google, right? Patients will go online, and I've done this for family and friends before too, is try to understand what's out there and how to get the information. How how can someone who either has themselves or who's a caregiver for someone who's been diagnosed um, with brain cancer, how can they prepare for their encounters and their information? Like what, what makes them better equipped essentially to understand what's going on and to, to work uh, in partnership with you and their, their care team?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think that what you said about Dr. Google really hits home because you know all, all my patients come and they've done their internet research. And I think it's a great start um, as long as they take it with a grain of salt, of course. Um, I think it opens a lot of questions and then having the medical professional answer those questions to kind of explain or um, you know reassure them that these things are true or these things are not uh, it's it's a great conversation starter and a great launching point as far as what's good information out there and what isn't I, I think having patient support groups is phenomenal mm-hmm. and Talking, speaking with patients that have gone through similar treatments at various institutions is great um, because they can tell you you know, what is rubbish and what's actually um, factual about what they've read online. I think things such as X-Cures is fantastic. I mean, the the more information and the more kind of centralized the information becomes, as soon as we become one huge streaming ball of consciousness, mm-hmm. then we can compare notes and we can see what truth is. Um, and so I think that the more the information is out there um, and finding things where there are a lot of opinions, that's really where we can, um, where patients can prepare themselves and then take these kind of refined, multiple vetted questions to their um, surgeon or oncologist and ask them. How
0: how do you personally kind of keep up with everything that's that's going on? I mean, I I must imagine you're busy seeing patients on a a full-time job, right? Just dealing with the patients. How do you find time to keep up with and kind of consume information? Where's the best way that you get kind of the latest research or you hear about the amazing technologies that you've been talking about? I mean, you're obviously working with some of them directly, but how how does that happen?
1: Um, yeah, so I think that you know, obviously, we go to our national meetings and our conferences all the time. We present there our research. Um, we listen to other institutions and other speakers on what they've been doing, and that sparks ideas and innovation that we take back home as well. Um, I get a month, or sorry, a weekly PubMed email blast that says these are the the most mm-hmm. interesting articles that have come back uh, come in the last week, um, which I kind of skim through the abstracts because you know it's it's really just kind of a Sunday morning reading mm-hmm. thing for me. Um, and then, um, other than that, I, I think it's really just continuing to speak to other people, um, as far as keeping up with what patients see in here. Um, I do follow people on social media that are also in the, the field and the realm. Um, I get patients, um, messaging me on social media asking, you know, this is what I've heard. This is what I'm going through. You know, is this right? Is this wrong? Fortunately, I don't have the time to respond to all of them, but it gives me kind of a, um, a little bit of a, a sense of what the pulse is regarding certain diagnoses and treatment options out there.
0: That's really interesting. You know, one of the things that
1: um, I've been thinking a lot about and
0: uh, my team and our collaborators and us have been really working on is how do we share knowledge um, among groups? So not just sharing um, data. Data is incredibly valuable. I'm not saying anything in data. And the more data we have, the more questions we can potentially answer for it If we have ask the right questions and understand it. But also how do we share insights? Um, and we think of those insights um, really in terms of rationales. So um, the way I think of like any decision that was made, there were different elements. Um, I'm, I'm not a physician, but I see physicians practicing and I see them looking at clinical factors, right? What happened to the patient? Did they have adverse events? Did they had some surgery, right? Maybe they had some past history, right, that's actually a clinical history that's affected it. Um, they might be talking to the patient about their preferences, right, like what are they trying to achieve um, in, in, their, in their treatment, or what, what are their expectations for this ongoing treatment. And then there's all this, like, biological data, right, around genomics and proteomics and everything, and all tumors going out to, like, growing organoids and deep sequencing and so on and so forth, right, and it's just like all this information. But at the core of each one of these decisions, right, of like what to do or not, there's some sort of rationale which said we're going to, of the 10 things that could be done, this is the one because of some set of, of discussions. Have you ever found a good forum for like exchange? Like how, how does that knowledge, right, which is really the the art, right, of the medicine, right, get transferred? Because that's been fascinating. us. So we're trying to learn from those. And have you found a great place to like, like when you're, trying to make that decision of here are five things I'm considering for this patient. How do you yeah. get help around that? No, absolutely. And
1: I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the, the art of medicine. Um, I think that's exactly right, that you can have all the evidence out there, but every patient is different. Otherwise we would just be, you know, um, up to date. you know, where you just right. pick up uh, you know a diagnosis and then all the recommendations would be there. But um, that's, I think that, For a lot of cases, we can just see a patient say, okay, this is what needs to be done. But in retreatments or more complex cases, we have our tumor boards Mm -hmm. um, that are phenomenal for this. And so um, this is another um, merit of going to a larger institution that specializes in these things because then you have experts in um, radiology, radiation oncology, surgery, surgical oncology, all at these tumor boards. So it's 15, 20 people all reviewing the scans, the clinical history, the genomics, everything, and then saying, okay, this is what we've tried, this is what needs to be done, and these are the reasons. And I think that um, having that discussion, not only going back to your previous question, keeps you up to date because they'll bring information that they've read that you might not have seen. But then also they'll give insight based on their experience that you may not have encountered in your patient population before. And I think that's how this, the verbal art gets passed along.
0: So these tumor boards, can you, you describe, like, when, when is a tumor board run for a patient? What is You mentioned a bunch of different uh, specialties who are at that tumor board. Um, is there something where a patient should be thinking that well, I should really have had a tumor board or I, I should go find a place where they do have a tumor board, right, because it's not available everywhere, right, in every setting? But how when and how important – well, let me rephrase. How do they work, right? What are they? And then when is it – kind of critical that that's the thinking that takes place
1: yeah i think that with our tumor boards the way it works is any patient that has a new diagnosis of a tumor um it gets presented at these tumor boards and oftentimes if it's you know clear-cut like i said they need surgery we need a diagnosis we'll present that and they'll know and then we'll move on 30-second discussion no problem Mm -hmm. We meet every Wednesday, and there's a kind of a radiosurgery metastatic tumor board, and then there's a primary tumor board, and so there are two separate um, tumor boards and often very much a lot of overlap as far as the attendees. Um, When do patients need to present their case at a tumor board? I think, obviously I'm biased, but as soon as the diagnosis is made on an MRI, I think that they should be presented at a tumor board. The reason is is that the trajectory is extremely important when it comes to patients with brain cancer. Um, much like anything else, if you start down the wrong path, just one degree of miscalculation in the beginning can lead you miles away from where you want to be at the end. And I think, especially in brain metastases or primary brain tumor patients, I see patients that a surgeon said, okay, we're going to do the surgery. And it wasn't done in a way that thought Mm -hmm. long-term. Or maybe they should have gotten radiation first, or maybe they should have done a biopsy instead of a full resection, or vice versa, a full resection instead of just a small biopsy. And so I think that having that discussion early on to say, we're going to present your case, even though we know what to do, allows us to see the long-term picture for these patients so we don't burn our bridges down the road. And so we have backup plans, A, B, and C, from the get-go.
0: Yeah. You know, the concept, um, and I've talked about this with a number of folks is the idea of like playing chess with cancer, right? So if you're going to play chess, one of the basic skills you need is you need to be able to think many moves ahead. And in fact, the better the chess player you are, the more moves ahead you can contemplate of the kind of if, ands, or bots. And I always think of this as like, well, I could do A, B, or C, but if I do A, then next time I won't be able to do C. And if I do B, then I can't do A or C, but D or E, right? So there's this kind of complexity to mapping that out. And we kind of think of this as this kind of overall problem of kind of strategic planning. And it sounds like that's a great insight to get from the tumor board. Do the tumor boards talk through this uh, multi-level approach or are they more about the decision they
1: make? And then uh, how does that? Yeah, no, they do. And, you know, we, we have a lot of different opinions for that very reason so that we can kind of plan the trajectory and say that, you know, this might seem like a great option right now, but we've seen patients where this, we tried down this path and it ended disastrously or something like that, or not as favorable, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, and so having that experience is important. And I'll say that, you know, the, the thing, especially, you know, I love that analogy regarding playing chess with cancer. You have to feel that way. Um, and I think that, the, the issue oftentimes, even with surgeons, is that unless you see a lot of these patients, you don't develop that kind of heuristic thinking and that ability to see 20 moves ahead because you're only playing chess once a day, or sorry, once a year rather than once right. a day. So the more kind of repetitions you do, the more you're able to see that many moves ahead.
0: How do you resolve um, in these discussions that involve multiple experts? how do you resolve kind of disagreement does it come to consensus or is it okay to say you know i, I know i'm kind of digging in no, sense that sense but i just great. imagine you have a lot of really yeah. smart people yeah. sitting around and anytime around really smart people i always learn that they definitely don't agree about much yeah. right so i figured that there must be some part of it and then not only how do you resolve that but then how does the decision end up turning into an action right. um,
1: afterwards that's a great question and um you know we've had the great fortune at our institution that everyone's extremely nice. Mm -hmm. Um, But I will say there are times when we disagree on patient management. And, uh, you know, it is a little few and far between. I I would say maybe just less than 5% of the time. But um, in those cases, often there's enough rationale that says this is what we think. These are the reasons. And then I think that ultimately we do come to an agreement. In the rare cases where a surgeon disagrees with an oncologist and, you know, really says that we still think that we should do this or vice versa, an oncologist disagrees with a surgeon. I think it's whoever has the longer relationship with that patient. Mm-hmm. The patient has to say, we always tell the patient if there's a disagreement. Um, and I think the patient and the, the physician that's treated them the longest or has a better relationship, has to make that decision. Obviously, there's equipoise and disagreement for a reason because there is no right answer um, in these challenging cases. And then that's where the physician-patient relationship becomes paramount because it's that trust that this person wants the best for this patient and they just have to take that leap of faith.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I, I love the phrase equipoise, right? It's like you don't know what's really going to happen. There's no right answer here, which I think especially when we talk about these complex Diseases, nobody knows. We don't We don't actually understand the disease well enough. There's not enough data. And there's probably not going to be enough data to answer these things clearly for some time, right. right? So it leaves us, I think, all of us in this really interesting um, situation where what we'd like to do is really understand what happens. So, like, if we can just chip away at equipoise, right, mm-hmm. like yeah. piece by piece by piece um, overall. And then those decisions are really difficult ones. How do um, – how can patients um, kind of consume or their caregivers consume this idea that there's no right answer? Have you seen any advice for kind of patients and their caregivers when they're kind of going into this that, you know, I think a lot of people have this idea this is a bad thing, but it's going to be okay because I this thing is going to work or whatever. And that may not be always true. So how do you balance their expectations? Um,
1: yeah, it's tough. I mean, anytime you see a patient with a cancer diagnosis... Um, They know it's something that, especially brain cancer, it's not something that we are going to cure, oftentimes um, with the more malignant ones like brain metastases or um, glioblastoma. It's something that we're gonna be battling for the rest of the patient's life. Having that understanding makes them realize that there is no perfect answer, no curative solution potentially. And so all we can do is do our best. And I know that's—it's a little underwhelming to say have, you know, uh, almost a terminal diagnosis and have someone say all we can do is do our best. But you know, sometimes our best results in miracles, and we've seen really great stories: GBM patients living fifteen, twenty years mm-hmm. with our clinical trials, um, brain metastasis patients that are like disease-free in their brain for you know five, ten years. It's fantastic, right? And so I think that as long as we keep pushing the envelope and doing the best, it's, I think the patients are reassured that, you know, coming to the best place, um, that they're going to get the best treatment possible.
0: Yeah. I actually talked to a brain cancer patient, uh, I guess a couple weeks ago now. And um, this gentleman was just uh, really fascinating to me because what he told me is that, and he described this to me in a way that uh, I liked, which is he said, we all know about the bell shaped curve, right? You know, there's this distribution of outcomes, right? Where, where we all fall but none of us know because of the way that it works where we fall like we might maybe be able to add some risk assessment on kind of here or there but you don't really know where you are in that journey um and experience and what he told me which i found really fascinating was that his approach was to take anything and everything you do and think of it as a way to try to move to the tail he's mm. like i want to move where wherever i am I want to try to move in that direction, whether it's one step or 10 steps doesn't really matter, right? And I don't even need to quantify that necessarily in that way. I just know that this is the right direction that, yeah. that I'd like to go. And he was talking about things like fitness, wellness, diet, right, uh, mental health, right, a bunch a bunch of the things outside of the actual um, medical treatments that he had underwent that he thought played a large role, right, in that and then his support and social structures um, around that. What you said just reminded me a lot of that, yeah, which is no. like you want to get down that that cycle. So um, maybe just um, for people who might be out there who are wondering, um, you know, this is a deadly disease, right? What, what are signs and symptoms? Like what, what should someone be looking for, right? And, you know, obviously if you don't feel well, you should go see your doctor, mm-hmm. right? But um, what are the things that for brain cancer that are kind of really
1: signs that people should be aware yeah. of? Yeah. Uh, I love that you asked that question because I think this is a great platform to kind of do the public service announcement right the um, it's it's interesting how people sometimes kind of shake things off and say okay um, I am having this weird symptom but you know it's nothing I'll sleep it off or something like that and we we hear about this in patients that have had strokes or you know brain tumors that are slowly growing or things like that I think that you know um, if you don't have a pre-existing cancer diagnosis, for example, then yes, it's it's reasonable to say, oh, I'm having an off day, that this is a migraine. 50% of Americans have headaches, so every headache is in a brain tumor, right? And so, but I will say that headaches that are worse in the morning um, can suggest potentially um, uh, increased brain pressure, which might mean something's growing in there. Um, Headaches that are, are, you know, that wake you up in the middle of the night that are associated with blurry vision that won't go away, um, these are things that are a little bit more concerning. Now, there are complex migraines or migraines that can cause visual disturbances and even neurologic deficits. So unless you have that history, it's something to watch out for. Um, Any kind of weakness, speech impairment that just won't go away, that's progressively worsening, Those are the things to look out for, because that could mean that there's pressure or destruction of those brain areas that might suggest that there's a brain cancer developing. Now, that's with a new diagnosis. With patients that have an existing diagnosis of some kind of malignancy, breast cancer, lung cancer, the things to watch out for are the same things as far as neurologic deficits and headaches that won't go away. But in addition to that, I think that one thing that I, I can't stress enough is new back pain. Because oftentimes these cancers can go to the spine as well. And patients that had never had back pain before all of a sudden say, oh, my back's been hurting for the past couple of months, you know, I don't know what it is. And that is a huge red flag for someone that has an existing malignancy because we often scan their spine and they have a new bony metastasis to their spine that needs to be treated. And so that, I would say, in addition to the, the neurologic symptoms, back pain is something to watch out for.
0: Is there anything out there that makes you um, more
1: likely to get brain cancer? Is there any sort of
0: um, history, um, particular types of genes, or anything you should be thinking about, like, wow, I'm at higher risk of this type of, of, of cancer
1: than others? Yeah, so there are genetic syndromes, um, such as neurofibromatosis, for example, or von Hippel-Lindau. These are you know, very rare genetic syndromes, so people that have it, they know. Um, but things like exposures or other kind of nuanced family histories, uh, not as much. We do see patients that have had like um, kind of large field radiations for childhood leukemias, for example, they can develop meningiomas, which are kind of um, tumors that grow from the coverings or the meninges of the brain um, down the road. So that is something that we can say is kind of a known risk factor. But cell phones living near power lines things like that i i don't think there's any good association so
0: got it very helpful people ask about that all the time yeah. the other thing is there anything like to reduce risk right you know we talk a lot about diet food exercise yeah. right anything particular with brain cancer or one of the questions that comes up is concussions or you know i think you mentioned like exposure to certain types of things any, anything that you should be like avoiding if this is
1: yeah so like primary brain tumor is nothing that we really Metastatic tumors, I I think that it's the typical things such as alcohol, smoking, um, exposure to sun that can cause skin cancers. All these things can potentially increase your risk. So uh, what you said about the the incremental fight to get it on the the tail end of the curve, I think that is a life value, actually, because anything that increases your risk of mutations to normal cells can potentially lead to cancer down the road. All right.
0: right. Wonderful. So how how long... uh can someone who has like if you really talk you you mentioned like long some really amazing stories of people living for a long time w- what should be like a general expectation for someone who has let's say a primary glioblastoma or something like that just to really kind of set the groundwork
1: of like where how does that generally play yeah so um, median survival for glioblastoma patient is 14 to 16 months mm-hmm. and it it's 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 fast and we haven't really pushed the um, we haven't really changed that too much in the last hundred years, despite everything. I will say that the outliers are more frequent, um, as far as seeing the patients that live years out with things like immunotherapy and whatnot, and advanced surgical technologies. Um, so that's with glioblastoma. Metastatic brain tumors, similarly, um, median survival is about two years from the time you have a brain metastasis diagnosis. So that also is fast. But again, in the era of immunotherapy, we're seeing patients live out a decade now. Mm-hmm. So. so that's interesting.
0: Let me see if I can kind of parse that a little bit. So we haven't really changed the median survival, right, to the middle. But the people who we are able to do something about now, more of them are having a better
1: outcome is that correct so that once
0: we find something that works so it's really about kind of that going back to this kind of playing chess Mm -hmm. having the best team right having the best game plan is the one that's going to drive you am i am i understanding that correctly yeah
1: absolutely you are and i guess i guess the it's what you were saying about the outliers we are seeing and creating more outliers and i think that the cure for cancer is incremental in the sense that we need to create so many outliers that we finally begin to understand why they are outliers and are able to um, reproduce that. And once we make every patient an outlier, that's when we have the cure.
0: If you or someone you know has advanced cancer and needs to make a treatment decision soon, please click on the link in the description and sign up for the x free options and information service.